So we ran a, uh, a sort of a mini-series, um, just looking at how we might respond to the challenges of the Who Cares survey. So that all happened, and we finished last week, and, and uh, we've just hit into uh, the right number of weeks for us to start a uh, mini-series, another series. So what we're going to do is over these uh, coming weeks, we're going to look at the last words that Jesus spoke from the cross. So seven weeks, seven words or phrases will help us in our preparations and we'll finish the last word will be on Palm Sunday, which will lead us nicely into Holy Week and then on to Easter weekend. And it's interesting, actually, because you think to yourself, um, what's really important is that somebody whose life is coming to an end, they may have something on their heart to share that will impact significantly those who follow. So the last words of people are seen usually as being uh, quite important. So I was just looking through some famous uh, last words. Richard III, anybody know what his last words were? He wanted a horse. That's it, my horse, a horse, a horse, my kingdom for horse. Which is interesting because he was dying. So I don't know how it works out that he would be able to, to ride this uh, animal. Um, Douglas Fairbanks Jr., uh, no, senior, he was an actor. His last words were, I've never felt better. I love this one, his his last words. This is the last words of General John Sedgwick. Um, He's from 1813 to 1864. His last words were, they couldn't hit an elephant from this dis. (laughs) Mary Antoinette, she was off to uh, have her head removed from her body. And uh, as she walked across the platform towards her executor, um, she said her last words were, pardon me, sir, as she stepped on his foot. <laughs> last thing that you think would be going through your mind is, is being polite. Barnum, we recognize Barnum, of course, from the uh, greatest showman film of a couple of years back. His last words were, as on his deathbed, were, how were the circus receipts in Madison Square Gardens last night? So even on his deathbed, he was concerned about the finances of his organization. But what were the last words that were said by the most significant person that's ever walked upon the earth? God's Son, our Savior. And we're looking at seven of them. We're going to look at seven over the next uh, seven weeks. Have we got, um, uh, uh, yeah, look at that, there, there. Words, we've got, I'm calling it Words from the Edge of the World. And the reason why I'm calling it Words from the Edge of the World was because on the first Easter that I ever celebrated, when I first became a Christian, which would be Easter 1990, the minister of the church that I was worshipping in, which was uh, Andover Baptist Church. The minister there was a guy called Frank Cook, and he did this series. And I always remember 
this amazing series that touched my life, which was called Words from the Edge of the World. And I thought, well, I can't beat Frank, so I'm going with Frank's title. And today we're just looking at the phrase, uh, Father, forgive. So it starts from here. This is in Luke 23. Uh, When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Have we read that before? Do you know this part of the story? So here is the the setting of what's going on. He has been uh, arrested. Jesus has been tried. He has been found guilty. And on the basis of his his guilt, as was decided by uh, those who were in authority, he was moved on from a, a, a cell towards a place where he was whipped, to a place where he was given the crossbeam of his uh, ultimate final uh, weapon of torture, which was the crucifix, and he's paraded through the streets up onto a hill called Golgotha, the hill of the skull, and there he is strung up. And it just says here, they came to the place called the skull, Golgotha, where uh, there they crucified him. This whole understanding of, of crucifixion, there was no more horrific way of bringing somebody's life to an end. There are countless uh, explanations that you can look up if you want to Google it of what is going on in crucifixion. But we do know that Jesus was upon a cross. It talks about nails through his, his hands and his feet or his wrists and his ankles. It talks about his side being uh, stabbed. It talks about him becoming thirsty. And the whole experience of crucifixion was meant to be a long, drawn-out, painful death. Jesus is on a cross. Jesus has a crown of thorns forced onto his head. Jesus has blood coming from the parts of his body where the anchor points are. Usually, when people are crucified, not that I have any experience, they usually die from asphyxiation. You can't breathe. And there was like on the, on the main upright of a cross, there was like a, a small lip so that the person who was being crucified can place their feet on this lip, edge themselves, and push themselves up so that they can catch a breath. And the one who breathed life into the world is hanging upon a cross, a Roman punishment, a torture implement. And he's coming to the end of his life. So we have in our explanation from the book of Luke here that uh, they were crucifying him. 
Two words, crucifying him, crucified him. They crucified him. But that does not in any way help us to understand the pain and the agony that he was going through. They crucified him. We're just going to look at these verses. Jesus said, on this cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Uh, you know, the things that go through your mind, you start to work out what, what was going on in, in Jesus' mind. And this is the prayer, the first prayer that he is speaking. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. It's a prayer to begin with of a, of a relationship. His first words from this place of agony are words to his Father. There's this sense that there is divorce, there is separation, there is a turning away. But the Bible says that God was in Christ. This is not just one being crucified. This is God on the cross. And even though we see Jesus on a cross, we see Jesus fully in relationship with his heavenly Father, Father. My first port of call is Father. We started this year by uh, gathering together over a Friday night, Saturday, and then into Sunday lunchtime, where we focused on the fact that the Father loves us. And sometimes we have a struggle with that. Do, Do you really love me, Father? Do you really love God? Do you really love me? And we wanted to start this year by recognizing without any shadow of doubt that we are loved by our Heavenly Father. It doesn't matter what excuse we may come up with that we think discounts us from God's love, but we recognize that at the beginning of this year, none of that counted because the Father himself loves you. We have a Heavenly Father who loves us. We recognize in the life of Jesus, in his ministry, he never did anything if that, that was not directed to by his Father. In, I think it's in John 5.19, it says that, that Jesus never did anything except that which his Father had called him or told him to do. He was in that intimate relationship with his Heavenly Father that he desires each and every one of us would be in with our Heavenly Father. So I don't do anything that God's not calling me to do. I want to be about his business, not my business. And there's this verse in John 10.30 that says, uh, I and the Father am one. That's the closeness. That's the intimacy. And here, as we start to look at the pain upon the cross, we recognize that it's a pain that is being shared in relationship. You see, sometimes things happen. Sometimes things happen that are not very nice things. I hear a, hear a story of uh, a mum who goes to see her minister, her counsellor, and she's at the end of a tether. She's just gone through a very messy divorce. 
Things are very difficult at work and it looks like work uh, is going to make her redundant. She's behind on the rent on the property. The car has been repossessed. The children are going mad. I don't know what's going on with them, she says. But it seems that the whole of my life is imploding and I feel I want to end it all. And then she confesses. She says, and I told my son, teenage son, I think I'm going to end it all. To which she responds by saying, good. Get on with it. What do you do in a time like that? How do you recover recover from that sort of situation? There's another guy in a scenario who sadly their marriage relationship had broken down and, and, and his wife had, had left him and has gone uh, to be with a, another guy and, and there was that separation and he'd always hoped that there would be reconciliation and months had passed and then she, she comes back and she says she's made a, an awful mistake and she wants to come back and he, he invited her back and they started again and they worked together hard at their relationship but time moved on and, and it seemed that she felt that she needed to go to be with this other guy again and, and she left her husband again and she's off with this other person and, and that separation is, is, ripping into his heart as I'm sure it's ripping into hers as well and he's coming for counsel and he says I've just had a call she wants to come back what am I going to do and I I just recognize that the words that Jesus is saying here are words that can implode on situations that are beyond our worst dreams. You see, the way forward in all the rough stuff and the difficulties is the fact that we are in relationship with God. We find ourselves in relationship with our Heavenly Father. And just as Jesus directs his first comments to his heavenly Father, that's the first place that we go. When everything looks pear-shaped, we go back to Daddy God. Father. The second part of the phrase here in this, this prayer of Jesus is, is the word forgive. This is the key part of it. This is, is what he starts off with. I'm up here in this horrific position and I'm asking... Father, we forgive. We pour out your forgiveness. How, how can you do that? I, I follow the story and how it's come about that Jesus finds himself where he finds himself. I understand the big plan of how the call was. Because of the love of the world, the whole world, he was redeeming, buying back. I understand all of that. But it doesn't make it easy when you see what's going on. Those individuals, part of his team that directed those who arrested Jesus to Jesus in the garden. This, Judas. 
And there's Peter by the fire and cocks crowing and all this sort of stuff. You know, I, I, I think about myself, I think if I were in Jesus' position, I don't think I'd be saying, Father, forgive. I'd be saying, Father, pour down fire upon these people. Bring about your judgment. Wreck them, Lord. Which is probably why I'm, I'm not God. Good job. But Jesus, in the midst of the horrific situation he finds himself in, part of God's plan being worked out is forgiveness. You see, with regard to forgiveness, God never asks us or invites us into any activity that he's not willing to or hasn't already done himself. So when I think about can I forgive, my automatic response has got to be, let's look at what Jesus would do, and it looks like he forgives. So forgiveness. This is how the prophet Isaiah reminded us of the journey that Jesus is on. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We are able to do what we could not do on our own because what he has done for us. The healing and the restoration that we receive has been paid for by the fact that he was pierced for us. third part of this prayer is how Jesus directs us to identify with a certain group of people. Because he says these words, he says, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. And in one sense, you could recognize that them were those who were gathered around him. Those who were in the uh, uniform of, of the Roman armies. It's them. They physically did this. Or we can follow through as I did just now. It could have been them who were the authorities that set the course in motion. So it's the religious leaders. It's the... Pontius Pilate in his jumped-up tribunal. That's the the them. But we also recognize that it includes far, far more than those specific characters. When we start to look into Scripture, we can see that we all have a part to play. This is so inclusive, isn't it, when the Apostle Paul wrote to, writes to the, to the church in Rome and reminds them, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay, right. So the them, Father forgive them, means me too. I, I'm just going to share it, put it out there. It means you as well. Because we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans goes on to say, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. 
No one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And as we're going through this little journey as a church through our life groups, and our life groups are looking at this material that is about talking Jesus, and we're talking about how can we talk more about Jesus and desiring to be equipped to talk more about Jesus and then we find ourselves talking with more people about Jesus and this is one of the ones that comes up all the time. This is one of the standard cherries. But I'm a good person. I don't need God, I'm a good person. I'm I'm doing okay. I, I, I give to charity. Actually, I pay, when I say give to the charity, what I really mean is I play the lottery and the lottery gives a penny or two to charity. For, I'm not, you know, I helped my neighbours when we were shoveling snow this time last month. I'm a, good, I'm a good person, you know. I let people in, in front of me on the motorway when it's all getting queued up and everybody else is getting anxious and nasty and I let people in. I'm a nice person. I'm nice. But the thing about it is, nice isn't good enough. You know, all have sinned. We fall short of the standard that God lays before us. Them is us. When we think of Jesus upon the cross, and we follow the story through to this point in time when our Saviour is lifted high, the most important thing to remember is he's there for you. He loves you that much. He identifies with us. There's identity. But there's also that thing about ignorance. There are some people, I don't know if you might know any people like this, who have got an awareness of God, an awareness of Christians and what Christians do and how Christians gather and how Christians desire to see the world transformed for God's glory. They have an understanding, a little bit of the Bible. They've got some awareness. They probably know a Christian or two but still turn around and say, I want nothing to do with you. So it's not that there is a a lack of knowledge. Actually, they have some knowledge. But the thing about it is, which I think I come to so often when I share my faith with people, is that, but you have no idea of what God is offering you. And maybe we, as representatives of God, have been pretty poor at sharing what God has on offer. See, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. There are some who have some knowledge, but don't do anything about it. Lord, forgive them. There are some people who, somewhere in this world, and it might even actually be in Brighton Hill, have no idea about God at all. No one's ever said anything to them about a God who so loved the world that he sent his son to die. No idea about the fact that when God created everything, he said it was good. Not only good, it was very good. It was perfect. 
have no idea whatsoever how sin through man came into the world and then messed everything up. But the biggest thing that it messed up is our ability to have a relationship with our Creator God. The Bible says very clearly that we, uh, that God cannot look upon sin. And therefore, sin needs to be removed so that a relationship can be restored. And some people have no idea about that. And the words that Jesus says is, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. They have no idea the implications. And therefore, those of us who do know have this passion in our hearts, set alight by the Holy Spirit to say something, to do something about that. It seems strange that at this time, at this time, that anybody would not know who Jesus is and what he's done for them. I go into school and I speak in schools and I chat to the kids in the school just across the road from here. Some of the things that they think that we think are bonkers. But the only reason why that they think that we think strange things is because nobody's told them any different. It's our privilege to remove that ignorance. So it could be those who know something and do nothing about it. It could be those who know absolutely nothing. And it could be people like us who have tasted but have not immersed ourselves fully into what it means to be a follower of Christ. We carry some of that ignorance. And the last point I want to pull out this morning is the completeness. But this is sort of jumping ahead, really, because the last thing that we're going to look at on Palm Sunday is the fact that Jesus' words are, it is finished. What he does on the cross is a complete, finished work. He rewrites history. So when he starts a prayer with, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. It is a prayer that is going to run through to completion where there is an acknowledgement that the work that he is doing upon the cross in redeeming, buying back the world for himself will be completed. Words from the edge of the world. But the key one here is the fact that you can be forgiven. I'm going to read you a story. This is a story that's found in one of the books by a guy called Max Lucado. And I can't remember which one it is. I think it was something like Six Hours One Friday. Oh, that sounds about right. Let me read this story to you. The small house was simple, but adequate. It consisted of one large room on a dusty street. Its red tiled roof was one of many in this poor neighborhood on the outskirts of the Brazilian village. It was a comfortable home. Maria and her daughter, Christina, had done what they could to add color to the gray walls and warmth to the hard floor. An old calendar, a faded photograph of a relative, a wooden crucifix, 
The furnishings were modest, a pallet on either side of the room, a wash basin and a wood-burning stove. Maria's husband had died when Christina was an infant. The young uh, mother, stubbornly refusing opportunities to remarry, got a job and set out to raise her young daughter. And now, 15 years later, the worst years were over. Though Maria's salary as a maid afforded few luxuries, it was reliable and it did provide food and clothes. And now Christina was old enough to get a job to help out. Some said Christina got her uh, independence from her mother. She recoiled at the traditional idea of marrying young and raising a family. Not that she couldn't have had her pick of husbands. Her olive skin and her brown eyes kept a steady stream of prospects at the door. She had an infectious way of throwing her head back and filling the room with laughter. She also had that rare magic that some women have that makes every man feel like a king just by being with them. But it was her spirited curiosity that made her keep all the men at arm's length. She spoke often of going to the city. She dreamed of trading her dusty neighbourhood for exciting avenues of city life. Just the thought of this horrified her mum. Maria was always quick to remind Christina of the harshness of the streets. People don't know you there, she would say. Jobs are scarce there, she would say. Life is cruel there, she would say. And besides, if you went there, what would you do for a living? Maria knew exactly what Christina would have to do for a living. That's why her heart broke when she awoke one morning to find her daughter's bed was empty. Maria knew immediately where her daughter had gone. She also knew immediately what she must do to find her. She quickly threw some clothes into a bag, gathered up all of her money and ran out of the house. On her way to the bus stop, she entered into a small shop where there was a photo booth. The last thing she did was buy pictures, lots of photographs of herself. When her purse was full of small black and white photos, she headed for the next bus to Rio de Janeiro. Maria knew that Christina had no way of earning money. She also knew that her daughter was too stubborn to give up. When pride meets hunger, a human will do things that they never before would have thought thinkable. Knowing this, Maria began her search. Bars, hotels, nightclubs, any place with a reputation for street walkers or prostitutes. She went to them all, and at each place she left her picture, taped on a toilet, a lady's toilet mirror, or tacked to a hotel bulletin board fastened to a corner of a a phone box. And on the back of each photo, she had written a note. It wasn't too long before both the money and the pictures ran out and Maria had to go home. The weary mother wept as the bus began its long journey back to the small village. It was a few weeks later that young Christina descended the hotel stairs. Her young face was tired, her brown eyes no longer danced with youth, but spoke of pain and fear. Her laughter was broken, her dream had become a nightmare. 
A thousand times over, she had longed to trade these countless beds for her secure pallet. Yet the little village was, in too many ways, too far away. And as she reached the bottom of the stairs, her eyes noticed a familiar face. She looked again, and there on the lobby mirror was a small picture of her mother. Christina's eyes burned and her throat tightened as she walked across the room and removed the small photo. And written on the back was this compelling invitation. Whatever you have done, whatever you have become, it doesn't matter. Please come home. And she did. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. And it just starts with that recognition that it doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter what you have become, the invitation is to come home, come back into the relationship that God desired that we would all have with him from the very beginning. Where there is life, there is love, there is intimacy. There is constant presence and support and encouragement. There's an awareness that we are his and he is ours. What better way is there for sealing this understanding than gathering together around the Lord's table? So Matt and the team are just going to come and lead us in a song as we prepare ourselves to recognize once again that we are his chosen people. We are those who are forgiven. We are the ones that the invitation has been put out to. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've become. Come home. From the cross with his arms wide open is this welcome, welcome. Let's sing.